Hello, everyone. Thank you for checking out this special episode of Really Dicey. This is Manny, and I'm here with... Keith Baker, creator of Eberron. <laughs> Thank you so much again for taking the time to talk to us about um, your latest work, Chronicles of Eberron. And it's such a fascinating book. I'm enjoying what I'm reading so far. So let's, let's, let's talk about first about the genesis of this idea. It's interesting when I talk to creators about the directions they go in their in their books. What where like what what lands do they decide to talk about and explore, or new creatures or monsters? Uh, what where did the idea for this book come from? So it came from a number of different places. So the first step is that back in 2021, uh, I was working on a book called Frontiers of Eberron, Threshold. I am still working on that book. It's a book I'm very excited about that is a deep dive into a particular uh, area of Eberron. Uh, but basically, I was working on that very intently. And in the middle of the year, uh, I faced a number of just sort of family tragedies and things like that that I had to deal with. And basically, I didn't have the uh, time, focus, energy to continue working on Threshold and had to put that on hold. Uh, but I wanted to keep, uh, keep you know, I, I love Eberron, wanted to continue to be dwelling in Eberron. I just needed things that were smaller and more focused. Now, over the last 20 years now, especially the last 13 years, basically it's been about 13 years since the last official Eberron product came out up until Rising from the Last War, exploring. You know, there was this big gap of time. And during that time, there was no legal way to make new Eberron content, but I could answer questions. And so I spent, uh, you know, I've, I've written hundreds of articles, you know, just sort of answering the, you know, questions that people came up with. And with Chronicles, what I did is went back and sort of looked at the questions that either I've been asked most of all, like one of the most common questions I get is, how can I add Ancestry X? You know, how can I add Illumians? How can I add Goliaths? How can I add Herringon? You know, whatever the latest thing. I get that question all the time. How can I add this thing to Eberron? On the other hand, I also love what I call infrequently asked questions. You know, when someone asks about a thing that is there, but no one's ever asked about, like, What's the deal with Lorgalan in the uh, um, Lazarus Principalities? And the thing about it is because I've written so much and so many things, these are all scattered all over. They're things I've written over the course of 12 years where my opinions have changed, you know, new art things have changed them. And so what I did was basically go back, find all sort of my favorite questions that had been put to me. Uh, put those together, build on them, expand on them, uh, and in particular, add mechanics to them. Because again, up until recently, I couldn't create mechanics for Eberron. So a big example of this is the Dark Six. Uh, this book has a big section on the Dark Six. The Dark Six are traditionally seen as the sort of evil gods of Eberron, the sort of dark side of the sovereign host. But of course, part of the point of Eberron is that things aren't that simple. That the people of the Five Nations view the Dark Six as evil gods. 
the people of Droam, Dargoon, and such actually see the positive aspects of them. And so here we do sort of dig into uh, both sides of that. What are the positives and negatives of the shadow, of the mockery? And that was a subject I had explored before, but here I expanded in more detail and more uh, on top of that, we add a lot of different character options, uh, which can range from anything from, uh, we add a number of uh, class archetypes for, you know, if you want to be a dark petitioner, if you want to be a cleric of the shadow. But we also had some things that anybody can use from feats to uh, boons to uh, sort of part of the idea of the shadow is if you're a wizard, you can basically make deals with the shadow and get like weird, you know, weird forms of magic, uh, which you can do either through feats or just through learning strange spells. And so, as I said, that's all this sort of stuff that I've been thinking about the Dark Six for years, but I couldn't previously add that level of detail to it. Um, other things, it is this sort of, Chronicles is very much a blend of some of it is sort of direct advice. And this comes to that point of the question of where would I put Goliath Cineberon? It's not that I just, I do, in fact, in this, give a little list you know, with one paragraph descriptions of here's what I would do with Aarakocra, here's what I would do with Herangon. But beyond that, part of it is I'm saying, here's my philosophy. Here's the general approach I take from a more metagame level. Uh, likewise, there's an article that's here's how I start an Eberron campaign. Like, what is the first thing I do when I'm getting a group of players together? And so, as I said, it's this combination of deep lore but then also sort of a higher level, you know, sort of how do I approach running games? And that's different from Exploring Eberron. My last book was more on the sort of uh, source book, you know, sort of lore source book approach. And this is a little more my actual voice coming through as if we're having a conversation about it. The uh, Yeah, go on. Oh, no, 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 please, please. Oh, I was just going to say, the one other one I want to call out because I love it is uh, the Astral Plane. And that's just a good example of it's it's something that's always been there from the very beginning uh, Eberron campaign setting. And yet it's always just kind of been, I don't know, it's the Astral Plane. And so in uh, exploring Eberron, I dug into all of the unique planes of Eberron, Fernia, Kyber, uh, there, here... I actually, you know, sort of wanted to give that same treatment to the astral plane and say, okay, we all know about this. It's always there, but what makes it cool? Why do you ever want to go there? You know, and that's always what I try and do with lore is I basically want to say, why do you want to use this? What makes this cool? Mm. I, to to continue what you just said, I, I've noticed two things about this book that one, there is, yeah, you mentioned there's a section about uh, adding a lot of the different um, ancestries of species from the other books in D&D &D mm -hmm. into this setting. And what I was really impressed with was the Session Zero section. Because mm -hmm. usually with Session Zero, and nothing, no, not saying anything bad about it at sure. all, but usually when I think of Session Zero, it's usually I think safety tools. And usually yeah. the main thing, they go hand in hand together. But you expound on that greatly in, in the sense of that you're not just talking about safety tools. You, you talk about that as well. But you're talking about like, like talk about the religion to your to the to your players talk about um the setting like the character's gonna make and how that affects the world around them um mm. 
is that was something you were thinking of like a uh, uh in the sense of that yeah you want to give new lore and everything but you want to give tools also to give uh, new players yeah. a, a place in this world and, and there's a bunch of things like that in this session zero is the big one and i'll come back to it but also the very first chapter is the common knowledge chapter and the point there is that we get all our information through source books which present this sort of omniscient approach and it's not always easy to know but okay as a character what do i know about the lords of dust what do I know about the Draconic Prophecy? What is that guy? You know, if I just mentioned the Lords of Dust in a cavern, does anyone know what I'm talking about? And so that was one of the first things that I put in here was just this. This is what people actually know in the world. Session Zero gets to that same point of saying, you know, one of there's a number of things that were intentionally part of the setting when we made them that were designed to provide connections for characters the biggest one to me is the last war and it's just saying there's always that question i always ask my players is when they're making a character i want to know what did you do during the last war how did it affect you and uh religion is that other point because we often don't stop and think about it does it matter to my character like it is a big part of the world do i follow the host do i follow the flame if i don't why don't I like, is that a, a, a big thing for me? Or am I just, eh, you know, I just don't really care. Um, it's just the kind of questions, a lot of what goes into this sort of collaborative storytelling, especially when the DM knows the setting, but the players may not, is that people just don't always think to answer a question until it's asked. Um, one of this is a sideways point, but it just is an example of this, of when I have a fight in a bar, you know, like in a tavern, I always put out on the table a list of interesting things that are there. There's a roaring bonfire in the, the hearth. There's a plate glass window. There's a tray of drinks. There's a chandelier. Because once I put that out and say, you could get advantage if you do something interesting with one of these People immediately think, what can I do with a chandelier? Can I push a guy into the, the fireplace? But if you don't put that out, often it won't occur to people. It's a tavern. There's probably a fire in the fireplace. You know, even though that's that's pretty obvious once you stop and think about it. It's a big common room. There will, there will be a fire. And it's that same way with session zero. People often don't stop to think oh, there was a huge war that just ended two years ago. Like, if I was a fighter, I probably fought. And if I didn't, I should have a reason why I didn't. Like, that that itself is interesting. Or, again, if even if my character is not religious, religion is a part of this world, how has it affected me? Like, so... Uh, so very much that that's what that ties into is, is like I say about the chapter, part of it is the decisions I make in starting. And part of it is how I try and help the characters, especially people who don't know much about the setting. Someone who really knows the setting might come in and say, I'm going to play a, a paladin of the blood of Vol, who like was disavowed, uh, you know, by Caius. And, you know, I mean, They'll come in with all of that, and that's great, but it's my friend who's never played in the world before that I want to have a strategy for how I draw him in, and that's what that chapter is about. So this book is divided into two sections, the the library and the vault. Uh, do you mind elaborating what, what that means exactly? 
Yeah, so the library section is uh, material that is really aimed at both players and game masters. So for example, the Dark Six section is intended from the, the start to be something that, you know, not all characters are going to know, but all characters could know. It's not secret. And if your character is tied to the three faces of war, you would know about this stuff about the mockery. And it includes character options. It includes feats. It includes archetypes. Uh, it includes, you know, the sections about how do you add certain, uh, you know, species. It includes things like crossbows and armor, which we might come back to. You know, these things that really are there for everybody. Then as you get to the library, it's material that once again, it's not like players can't look at it, but it is more, this is information that your character probably does not know. Now we are going to talk about Ashtakala. Now we're going to talk about the overlords, uh, you know, and it includes monster stat blocks for Avash, the Twister of Roots, for Mordain, the Flesh Weaver, for the Grim Lords of Fallmen. And the point is, these are creatures you are more likely to encounter as enemies than as patrons. And so all of that's sort of in the second half of the book. And like I say, because of the nature of Eberron, it's not like, oh, you're going to ruin the game if you read about uh, Mordain. But at the same time, that's not material that is aimed at a player. Now, now for those who are following Eberron for, for many, many years, I noticed two things in here that you discussed that I, I'm glad we brought it out, uh, Psionics. Talk about Sonics, how, how it impacts this world, and high-level adventures. Um, yes. Let me talk a little bit about, let's talk about high-level adventures first. I know this is, um, I think some of the criticism with D&D &D 5e is that um, it, it's not, some things I keep hearing from other players is that it's not really, when it comes to high-level adventures, it doesn't really have much to offer. Um, but it looks like you've, you're adding some stuff. Can you, do you mind talking a little bit about this section? No, and, and part of it is, again, like I said, this is one of these questions that I have been asked a lot over the years, because people here, Ebron is a world that doesn't have a lot of high-level NPCs. And so what they think is, okay, so it doesn't really present challenges for high-level adventurers. And my point is, no, that is not true at all. It has many high-level threats. It's that by the time you're a 17th level character, you're not supposed to be facing just other 17th level wizards. At that point, the, the whole concept of Eberron is that it is the arc of a story, that your characters are remarkable, that you are essentially, if this is a series of novels, you're the heroes. And so the point is, at the beginning we're getting to know you. You're getting to find your place in the world. By the time you're 17th level characters, you are the legends of this age. Like you are the characters who should be really having an impact on the world. And the adventures you have shouldn't be just beating up tougher goons for the Boromar clan. And so part of what it's about is talking about what the higher level threats are in the world. And I'll note that this is something that comes up elsewhere within the book. Uh, you know, Avash and the Dalkir, you know, here is a high level threat presented. But in particular, there's a chapter called The First War. And, you know, basically dealing with the overlords. And part of the point is one of the, the major concepts of Eberron is this idea that when you start off in it, 
you are dealing with the Cold War between the five nations. The deeper you go, you are going to find out that what you're really dealing with is the Cold War between the Lords of Dust and the Chamber. That basically the dragons and the fiends have been at war for 100,000 years and it's never ended. They are still trying to unreach the overlords. This is something that could continue, uh, you know, could destroy the world. And that's a sort of overarching concept of when you're a low level character, you're not even aware of that. The more powerful you get, the more you can actually start to see the real sort of threats that are out there, that when you're weaker, you know, you, these are sort of cosmic concepts that you grow into. So in uh, the higher level adventures, I basically talk about how I and, you know, my campaigns sort of plan arcs within it you know, plan the arc of here's what I expect the characters to accomplish at the, the lower levels. Here's the enemies I expect to be. Uh, when you think of a lot of ongoing TV shows, like just it's a little dated now, but Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And the point is each season is going to have a big bad. And as they go, the big bads get bigger and tougher and so on. And so what I'm saying is I have a big bad planned for my my low level arc and it's going to be the Order of the Emerald Claw or it's going to be the Orum. You know, it's someone that they can deal with at that level. For the next arc, I'm like, now you're bigger, you're more important, you're making allies, the more powerful characters know who you are. As you get to the next arc, your actions are now affecting the Church of the Silver Flame itself or the you know, the role of nations, you know, that your actions are bigger because you are bigger and you're dealing with more important people. Up to when you're in tier four, the idea that at this point you truly are one of the legends, you know, people will be telling stories of you in the future and your actions should have that kind of weight. And now you're traveling the plains, you're dealing with characters like the Dalkir or like the Overlords. And um, you should just be having different sorts of adventures because the kind of adventures you were having before don't have the challenges for you, but now you're playing in a much bigger field. I can only imagine as a creator what you have to do for each edition that comes out and how to adjust the, the Rosonic rules for each one. Uh, yes. Uh, what, so, what can you tell us? <laughs> well, I mean, and this is the thing is what I didn't do here is design a complete psionic system hmm. because that's sort of beyond the scope of this, of this book. Uh, what I wanted to do though, is it is the case that from the beginning, Eberron was designed to incorporate psionics because they have been part of every edition. And one of the things that people have said in fifth edition is, well, what can we do with Ridra and the Dreaming Dark because there's no psionics and they're based on psionics. And so part of it is to say, you know, I say basically a couple of different things. I introduce a casual way to handle psionics, you know, introducing some more feats, calling out the feats that are in Tasha's. I also talk about the fact that the way that psionics, you know, the way that 5e presents things, part of the point is you don't have to have new classes to have a character who presents themselves as psionic. You know, one of the things I think if I'm recalling correctly, I described, for example, you could have a monk or a barbarian 
Like you can have a barbarian who describes themselves as when they go into a rage, they aren't actually going into a rage. They're this sort of tactile telekinetic who actually, when they rage, they're surrounding themselves with a telekinetic field. Mm -hmm. And that's what produces the damage they take. It's not just, I'm so mad I'm not hurt. It's I'm actually you know radiating a force field because the effect is I take half damage from physical attacks. You know, how you want to flavor that is up to you. So you can take a existing class and say, well, I'm making this my psionic warrior because it's all about as long as I and the game master, you know, the game master has to be a part of this conversation. But as long as we understand this is how we're presenting this information, then uh, then I can have the character I'm looking for, even if there isn't a whole unique ardent system or, you know, something like that. Uh, but beyond that, then it also just goes more deeply into Raedra itself, basically saying, again, whether you go this way or not, you don't actually have to have psionics to have interesting adventures in this area and so i go deeper into what Riedra is about into its uh provinces and what will take you there uh we also do have centira lenses which people are calling uh psychic ray guns and they are psychic ray guns they are essentially emotional firearms where you blast people with uh bolts of of sorrow or anger um and part of that was essentially designing uh ranged weapons that a trigger off of the mental stats that again give a little bit of a psionic flavor of the uh you know the monk can use a uh you know a centira lens that actually lets them shoot their their rage at people um and it just adds a different flavor and in particular part of the goal for us was to have like agents of the dreaming dark you know these are supposed to be exotic weapons you aren't supposed to just be able to go to the blacksmith and buy one but when the agents of the dreaming dark show up and are like shooting you with sorrow you know that's interesting and then of course you can try and get a hold of these from them um character option now all you know uh we all love new options <laughs> yeah. um what character options do you have in here and um uh is what are new things have you incorporated into this book? Well, part of the thing I will say is one of the things we decided to do in here, and of course, this is my copy I took to PAX, so it is super signed up. Uh, but what I will say is we actually did include in the table of contents, which is not that page, uh, a table of contents specifically of the character options to make it uh, extremely easy. You know, in previous books, we've sort of put all the character options in one chapter at the back. Hmm. And here, because they're spread out, we wanted to make sure it's easy for you to just say, I just wanted to find that dark petitioner uh, archetype. Where is that? And so, uh, you know, looking down uh, around through things, we have a number of different archetypes tied uh, mostly to the Dark Six, the, the College of the Fury for the Bard, the Aspiration Domain is about the Shadow, uh, the, you know, a Dark Petitioner is a rogue aspect for rogues, you know, following the mockery and the other Dark Six. Uh, we have the Oath of Veneration. There's a section on the Terranidal Elves who are basically the Valinar culture, uh, elves who sort of channel the spirits of their ancestors. And there's a paladin oath for the Terranidal. Um, we have, again, options that the whole idea is you don't have to base your whole character on this, uh, where we have, you know, boons, feats, uh, metamagic 
um, you know, that, that these are options that any character could sort of work their way into, uh, you know, make a bargain with an overlord and you can pick up a boon uh, or you could pick up a boon even without intending to, you know, by dealing with uh, with the Lords of Dust. Um, along with that, we have, of course, you know, things like Centura lenses. There's a whole thing uh, basically where I talk about uh, weapons and armor. And this is one of the earlier chapters. And again, one of the most common questions I get asked is where do firearms fit into Eberron? Why doesn't Eberron have firearms? And I do talk about that in here, but one of my main responses to that is a lot of the reason that comes up is people saying Eberron seems like an advanced culture. Why would people still have crossbows? You know, why wouldn't they come up with a better, more effective uh, tool, which in our world was firearms? And my answer to that is, okay, well, the point is what they would do is use the tools that they have, which are arcane science. And people can still say, yeah, but they aren't doing that. They're using crossbows. And my answer is, okay, but why do you think their crossbows are what you are thinking of when you think of a crossbow? Because when you actually look at the stats of a D&D crossbow, it's much superior to a 12, you know, a standard 13th century, you know, crossbow. The fact that you can move it, fire it, and reload it, and, you know, you can move, fire the crossbow, and reload the crossbow in six seconds is ridiculous. You know, when you think of the cranking, you know, that's faster than a Civil War rifle on a reloading rate. And so part of my point is change the way you're looking at this. Don't actually think of it like a medieval crossbow. Say this is a crossbow that's been enhanced with magic where the barrel accelerates the, you know, uses sigils to basically create a catapult effect and uh, accelerate the bolt to a crazy speed. And you can reload it quickly because it's not actually based on the tensile strength of the string, you know. And uh, so we've got pictures of cool crossbows, which you can, in fact, get on Hero Forge uh, if you're making minis. Uh, they work those in there. Um, same with armor. My big point is plate armor gives you disadvantage on stealth. You know what it doesn't give you disadvantage on? Acrobatics. Uh, so that tells me this is not your standard medieval plate armor. And so part of that point is the whole idea of just because in Eberron people you wear armor, they wield swords, they fight crossbows, don't think of that as medieval. Think about how could plate armor be cooler? How could it feel more modern without being thrown away? Um, and this comes back to the fact that in our world, the reason we stopped wearing plate armor is because it was ineffective, because it didn't defend you against crossbows. It didn't defend you against bullets. Well, plate armor still defends you against crossbows and, you know, whatever weapon it is here, which again means it's better than uh, than what we're using. Um, and so all of that is just that way of remember this is not a medieval setting and think about that as you're describing your character, as you're thinking about that character. So this book is also filled with um, uh, places, descriptions of places, um, and definitely threats. Um, yes. Is, is, was this, and, and uh, you mentioned before that um, sounds like this book was, uh, the idea of this book uh, came from just getting a lot of questions from, from fans. Mm -hmm. Is this maybe your answer to game masters have asked about, like, 
adventure seed ideas or the, the the big bad yeah and and it's it's a combination of that i mean that's that you know it's it's an exaggeration to say everything here came out of questions uh some of it also just was you know this whole thing of again despite having worked on everyone for 20 years there's always places we haven't gone uh the seas are a big one i did the thunder sea in um exploring eberron but there's 10 seas in in eberron and we've not touched on any of them so the barren sea was just one of these blank spots that okay i finally jumped on that one next up i'm i'm now in the process of working on the lazar sea you know i mean it's it's they're all they're all out there so it's filling filling in these gaps and so the same applies to the dalkir are a good point where we've had belashira we've had uh you know dirn in uh there i'm rising from the last war i added uh a va no um valara in exploring eberron in this one i've added avash in frontiers of eberron i'll deal with orlosk and you know so it is a sort of i'm just slowly working my way through uh, these are the the sort of characters that have always been there in my mind. I just haven't haven't got them out. Similarly, Mordain the Flesh Weaver is a character who I've always just loved, who is this sort of crazy mad scientist. Among other things, uh, we always say you can fit anything in Eberron, and one of the easy ways to fit things into Eberron is it's Mordain's fault. You know, you want to make Ad Herringum? Well, <laughs> Mordain turned owls into people. We don't know why. <laughs> You know, and uh, and so he's such a fun character that I just wanted to write more about him and give him depth and give him a 5e stat block. And so on the one hand, you have those. On the other hand, you have things like I, there's a chapter in here that's one of my favorites, which is called Ghost Stories. And the Ghost Stories chapter is basically just saying what is the role of the common undead? Mummies, ghosts, wraiths, shadows. You know, what's the difference between a wraith and a specter? What is a white in Eberron? And so this chapter basically starts by, by just sort of taking each of these and among other things saying, well, what's a story people would have heard? Like part of it is that idea that when we hear vampires, you know, we can immediately say Dracula. If you're in D&D, you're going to say Strahd. Right. And part of the point is, well, in Eberron, when someone says vampire, who do they think of? Like, who is the vampire that people tell stories about? Who is the lich? Well, Lady Elmero, is anyone else? You know, and um, so that chapter basically both introduces like this is how these characters you know these not characters these creatures fit into the world but then also adds a number of sort of variations of them uh so you have like the idea of the orlaska ghoul and the orlaska ghoul is sort of following the classic wendigo mythology you know the idea that a creature that consumes the flesh of its own kind can become cursed and it's saying well this is a way you can get ghouls but in addition to the traditional ghouls we think of that curse can go to any creature that that 
pursues cannibalism. And so it has a template for applying to monsters. So you can have essentially ghoul wolves, or we actually have a picture, I think, of a ghoul shark, you know, and uh, so it has a number of just little sort of different approaches uh, to using, you know, so as I say, you go from creatures like um, Mordain, who's, you know, an epic threat, uh, to things like the Orlaska wolf, which is, you know, a much more basic uh, threat that you can use in any campaign. This book is so full of information. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you wanted to share? I'll just take a quick look at it quickly while I'm here just to see, because, you know, there is so much stuff in it that I have to sort of stop and I think about, I think we've covered like the biggest, you know, the biggest sort of pieces when you look at large chunks are, you know, Redren psionics, you know, there's a big chunk on that. The dark six again, goes into all of them in depth, talks about their cults, gives you player options. Um, you know, there's a, a, a big sort of piece on undead in general, the sort of the ghost stories with the common use of undead, the grim lords of Fralnin, which are the blood sale principality, uh, which is just one of the more interesting, this is a nation sort of ruled by undead that we haven't dealt with much before, uh, Carnathian undead. So, you know, that sort of a thing. There is a big focus on the overlords, the, the fiends of the first age, including, I already talked about the first war, but it also talks about Ashtakala, their sort of fortress in the demon wastes, and just a big thing on, you know, a, a sort of uh, one by one list of these are all the overlords who we have discussed in canon and even, you know, that I've done in my work. So it's just sort of a conclusive, uh, we've talked about them before, but there's nowhere where you have just this list of here's all of them and what their deals are. Um so, you know, there are, there's, there's more in it. There's uh, information about the, the gnomes of Lorgalan and Pylos Perial, which are basically two cultures that are completely different from Zilargo and the Trust. Uh, there's a section on the Terranodal elves, you know, so again, all of those, those three are aimed at, here's a way to make elven characters or gnome characters that are different from the options you'd have before. Uh, so, you know, uh, that sort of covers the main of it. You know, as I said, there's a lot of just little things, but part of the point of it is you're if you're flipping through, you're going to find something you probably didn't know you need. And I'm going to hope that when you read it, you'll say, wow, I do need that. So mm. there you are. Excellent. So this is now out on Drive-Thru RPG. You could order the PDF and, or order a print-on-demand through there. That's correct. And there's two different uh, print qualities, uh, standard and premium. Uh, that's mainly about uh, paper quality. The, mm -hmm. the premium edition is glossier, and uh, the illustrations are you know have a little more color depth. Uh, the standard edition is perfectly fine, and I will just note I'm I'm holding the standard edition here, uh, so you know it it works perfectly well. It's just that the play the the pages are not glossy, and some of the images are a little darker. Um, and I will note it makes no difference to uh, me as an author which of those you get. We don't get any mm -hmm. any additional profit from the print option. That's just the cost of printing. And I noticed that is it is it, is it the same art team from Exploring Eberron that are mostly yeah yeah mostly uh, we have artists that we really like that we keep working with we have added a few new artists uh, the art is something I really love with this book so the cover is Thomas Borgun 
uh, who is has done the covers for all of my books, including uh, Threshold, which hasn't come out yet, but we've already got the cover. And I love his work. Uh, you know, this is, if I think it's a kid, no, this is Thomas again. And again, like I said, I love what he does with these characters. Uh, alert readers will note that these are the Badgers, our iconic adventurers who appeared in Chronicles of Eberron. Uh, you know, they're following us around wherever we go. Um, but this is where flipping through this one, I think is Carolina again. Yeah, Carolina, you know, uh, fighting a Vosh. And there's just so much, uh, so much good art. One of my favorites. So let's see if I can find it because this page always gets stuck. Maps is we also just as we always have the cover by Thomas Borden, uh, we always have a map by Marco Bernardini, and this is the map of Ridra. I love his style generally. He does this very sort of classic here, there be dragons, you know, sort of approach to things. But then also he just adds these amazing details where you're not going to be able to see it from here. But those images, those little call outs, it's a seal for each of the provinces. It shows a scene of things you'd expect to see there. But then he's worked in also the planar symbols of the planes that have the greatest degree of influence in that region. And it's just such, uh, you know, sort of depth that he adds. I really love working with Marco. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, there, as I say, there's a couple new ones. Uh, one of the topics we cover in some depth that I didn't mention is nobility, how the nobility of Galifar works, uh, what it means to have a character who is a noble, what it means to gain or lose noble rank. Uh, and I know this is this is Queen Arala of Ander, uh, and that is the artist is Alex Coggan. And she is is someone we hadn't worked with before, but I love her work. So there's a lot of just really good stuff. Excellent. I will put the link in the description below. Thank, Thank you, you, sir, for taking the time to talk to us about this amazing book. And to our viewers, thank you for watching. Stay safe out there. Like and subscribe. And we'll see you soon. Take care, everyone.